Good morning and welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes, and I, I, I think this is a first-time guest. We've been running a number of first-timers on the podcast. Uh, Josh Barrow yesterday, and uh, today uh, Matt Iglesias uh, joins us. Uh, the editor of, now, what do you, you, you call your, your newsletter? Slow Boring on yes. Substack. So, first of all, uh, good morning, Matt. Uh, good morning. Thank you for having me. So, slow, boring. But it's not, it's actually not not boring, I have to tell you. No, I, I, I try to, you know, lower expectations. And then, <laughs> and then it's, it's better to under-promise and over-deliver, I've always no, found. I, I figured that was the marketing thing. So, do you, you probably don't remember this. You and I have only met once. Oh, do, no. do, 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 do you remember I, I, when? I, I don't even remember when that happened. Okay, see, I, I figured. I hope I didn't do anything I, dumb. No, no. But I do remember this this moment. I obviously was not memorable to you, but you and I were both down at the Texas Tribune Festival. Oh, yes. Okay. We were sitting outside. And the reason I, rem I remember for three things. For, first of all, uh, you and I were sitting across from one another. And, and number one, I remember that they had these free breakfast burritos. Yes. Which were awesome. Okay, that's number one. Number two, I was sitting and listening on my phone through, I'm guess, Sirius XM radio or something to the uh, the, the Kavanaugh to the Kavanaugh hearing, hearing. the yeah. Kavanaugh hearing that morning. And uh, you and I just exchanged. You said, "How's it going?" And I said, "It's it's, it's pretty. It is pretty compelling." And the number three reason I remember it is because then I would I went on to do a live podcast uh, there at the Texas Tribune Festival where I made one of my worst calls, which was, and this was like noon mm -hmm. that day. And at that point, this was before the Kavanaugh Rage Festival. Um, yes. That, that, that he was, he was done. I, I did not think he was going to be confirmed. And obviously I was uh, completely wrong about that, but I do remember sitting across from you and I thought, this is Matt Iglesias, who's like a big hardcore lefty, mm. <laughs> which is so unfair. And I apologize now because- well. I've become less hardcore. <laughs> well, okay, so th that was kind of what I was asking because it strikes me is that you're you're on kind of an interesting path. So, I mean, like, how do you describe what's going on with you? Because what's you are very clearly, I won't say a contrarian because that word has now been overused, but you are certainly now have become an unorthodox center, a man of the center left. Or how would you describe it? Yeah, I mean, you know, some is that I have changed my views on on some things and uh, I think have become, you know, somewhat more conservative on, on certain kinds of topics. Uh, another one is, um, you know, the American politics has, has changed. Uh, the Democratic Party has become much more solidly progressive than it was uh, under, you know, Barack Obama's presidency. Uh, the Republican Party has become... I would say crazier, you know, like yeah. more indulgent of kooks, more extreme in the procedures that it's willing to undertake, things like that. But it, but in some ways more moderate in terms of the policy stances hmm. that it hmm. that it undertakes. I mean, it's a little hard to know how to characterize it. I mean, because these days to be a true conservative in a lot of ways just by definition, is to be an ardent supporter of Donald Trump. But in another respect, I mean, relative to the ideas that 10 to 20 years ago we would have clearly identified as conservative, we would have said, well, conservatives really believe in the free market. They believe strongly in a certain kind of conservative moralism about, you know, sexual conduct and, and traditionalism about the family. And I think the Republican Party has become less committed to those 
things, right, as actual policy matters, um, even as we've gotten more, um, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene says that she didn't mean to say anything anti-Semitic about an unholy alliance of Zionists, leftists, and capitalists uh, using immigration to displace the American people. And I'm like, I I don't know, (laughs) you know, what what could you have possibly meant by that? Um, But, you know, it's not a strident uh, policy critique in the way that, you know, when, when Mike Pence led the Republican study group, you'd mm-hmm. be like, okay, that guy, he's like, he's really right wing. Um, he, he really, he wants to eliminate social security. He thinks that's a, that's a bad idea and everyone should rely on individual savings. Um, now it'll be like, well, Mike Pence, he's maybe not conservative enough because he didn't want to, um, throw out the results of the electoral college and pretend Donald Trump won the election. So that's a very different kind of political debate in which I'm both like more, I'm more worry that, you know, if Republicans win, like nut jobs are going to be running the country in, in a really a scary bet. way. Um, <laughs> but also the Democrats have gotten, I, I don't quite know what to say about it, a, a little self-indulgent, you know, in an era where they feel like, <sighs> These guys running the GOP are like they're they feel that they're so obviously bad, right, that everyone should be on the Charlie Sykes life trajectory mm-hmm. where they're like, this this is no good. Like, I'm going to I'm, I'm, I'm going to stay away from them. Uh, but most people just aren't like that, you know, and they they care about how public policy impacts their lives in sort of concrete ways. And Democrats have gotten very into at least saying they're going to enact all these sweeping changes. And I, I think they probably won't at the end of the day. It's part of what's so perverse about some of the kind of like leftist posturing. It's a, it's a 50-50 Senate. It's a tiny House majority. They're really struggling to actually pass things. And so it's almost like, why not adopt a more reassuring posture in which you admit to yourself, to your supporters, to the country that like, Joe Biden is going to try to provide competent, responsible government, but like he's not going to transform the basic social compact of the United States. Like it's not really his brand. It's not supported by the math in Congress. But now we're in this kind of like banging their heads against the wall, you know, like we've got to do all this huge stuff and everybody's getting mad all the time. And it's very... Puzzling. There, there is a real disconnect. And, and, and you tweeted about this yesterday. And I wanted to ask you about this. You know, go, going back to, to 2020 or 2019, you, you noted that during that whole primary season, the, the, the policy debate was, you put it, insanely detached from the reality of Senate politics. The Democrats ended up with more seats than a reasonable 2019 forecast would have predicted. But the notion somehow that with a 50-50 Senate and a narrow majority in the House that you could have transformative radical politics. And there's this just deep funk now that they haven't been able to enact this this FDR type agenda. And in in in, in retrospect, there there was this deep, you know disconnect between the political reality of the world and what they were telling one another was possible. Yeah. And I mean, you know, there have been sort of multiple stages of this that that I think you can trace, right? But so, you know, in 2019, you had, um, it seemed like it was going to be a very tough 
you know, election fight for Democrats. I mean, Trump was pretty unpopular, but he had an advantage in the Electoral College. The economy was doing well. And, you know, you you try to win, right? When you're the opposition party, you, you do your best. Um, but there was no reason to think that there would be a huge landslide. And so you had this very weird primary where it was like, how much stuff are you going to promise people you're going to do and then it's not going to happen? Um, and, you know, as a, as a journalist, I mean, I, I, I tried to be a someone who would cover the policy debate in a rigorous way, you know, and, and talk to people about what was going on. And if you try to scrutinize these ideas in details, uh, people would kind of concede. I mean, people in the, the interest group and advocacy world that like none of this was likely to pass. Um, but they kind of felt it was important to test politicians metal, uh, by seeing, you know, what they would commit to, how, how far they would go. Then, you know, Joe Biden, uh, very late, very late in the primary process, breaks open a big lead, right? He's the most moderate mm-hmm. candidate in the field, except for maybe Steve Bullock. Um, it turns out that, you know, there just wasn't that much yearning, even in the Democratic Party, for uh, big structural change, as Elizabeth Warren said, or um, a political revolution, as Bernie Sanders said. But then right as Biden is wrapping up the nomination, we start to slip into the pandemic. Right. And then Biden, in an interesting way, almost unprecedented in American history, he almost pivots left after winning the nomination. Hmm. Right. Because some of that is, you know, he's trying to consolidate party support. Right. He's trying to get the Bernie people on board. He's trying to get the Warren people on board. But a lot of it is that the objective situation keeps changing. Right. A campaign that had mostly been conducted during good economic times is now being conducted amidst this huge national emergency. So there's a story in Politico about how Biden is planning an FDR sized presidency because he's now thinking, okay, I'm going to take office in the middle of an unprecedented crisis, right? This after huge a landslide collapse. win, yeah. right? After a landslide win, and so this concept of building back better, you know, starts to really take hold. But then it turned, you know, I mean, two things turn out to happen. One is Congress on a bipartisan basis enacts just a ton of relief spending, right? I mean, the CARES Act is enormous. And then during the lame duck, uh, Mitch McConnell, in an effort to hold those Georgia Senate seats, agrees to $900 billion more dollars in, in COVID relief. And then it also turns out that the, the polls were off. And, you know, Biden won the election. He did mm-hmm. well. Uh, Democrats gained net three Senate seats, which was, uh, you know, they, they picked up four, but they, they lost uh, that seat in Alabama, which was, you know, Worse. It was worse than the fall polls had said they would do, but it was better than the kind of 2019 forecasts that said they would do. But there was never a moment psychologically where they kind of pulled back and said, okay, we're in the situation we thought we would be in before the pandemic. But with the difference being, there's this pandemic and we need to address the pandemic and we need to. Uh, what what was Biden's theme? He said, you know, he was going to restore the soul of the nation. Um, right. And it was if progressives found that idea very disappointing. You know what I mean? Like they really? really did not want a president whose top priority was going to be restoring a sense of normalcy in the wake of Trump insanity. Right. They wanted big structural change. Biden came to the idea that he was going to do both because he thought he was going to win a landslide and he thought he was going to get a country with mass unemployment. 
And he just kind of didn't, right? And so we've instead been dealing with an inflation problem. We've been dealing with the fact that um, the vaccines are very good. They're very good at, you know, uh, protecting people personally from the worst health outcomes, but they haven't crushed the virus in the way that we once hoped. Uh, Trump is still out there being maniacal, but there's really an effort to um, uh, just like try to deliver on this transformational change that the election results just they, they don't really support. Well, we've now we've known this for some time and there's lots of speculation yes. about, you know, will there be a course correction? Um, th- this is difficult for, for for Joe Biden right now, isn't it? I mean, that, it, it, it seems obvious that the course correction is to recognize, as you pointed out, that, uh, you know, the median Senate seat is R plus six. So it's going to be extremely challenging to pass any progressive legislation. Uh, you can either just give up or, you know, continue to, you know, have have these sort of show votes that you're going to lose or you begin to change your message to begin to acknowledge the reality of where the electorate is, what the electoral geography looks like. So what what first of all, what do you think, Joe Biden, if, if Joe Biden called you up after this podcast and said, Matt, I am in deep shit. What, <laughs> what do you what do you think I should do between now and November? What should I do with the rest of my presidency? You know, I mean. What Democrats ought to do as a whole, right, is they should sit down with Joe Manchin. They should agree on some amount of Build Back Better spending that is more than $0 and less than $1.8 trillion. Um, There's like a lot of numbers between those two numbers. And it's driving me crazy that they can't just agree on one, right? And they got to say, Joe, like whatever you can come up with here, like we are going to sell that to the base. We're going to sell it could to they, the regular Could they file. sell it to the base? I think that they absolutely could. This seems easy to say, okay, Joe, here's, give me a piece. Here's a blank piece of paper. You tell me what you agreed to. We'll do that. But then will you be able to sell that in the house of representatives, for example? I mean, I really think that, they, I, I, I think that, you know, the congressional leadership has been acting very, um, Weekly, uh, people say that Chuck Schumer is very worried about the prospect of a primary challenge to him, mm, and AOC. from from AOC or from somebody. I mean, yeah. but I guess presumably her. That seems so crazy to me that I have been reluctant to give it credence. I mean, how do you look at a world in which? Joe Biden wins his primary in which Eric Adams wins his primary in yes, New York City. Right. And you're Chuck Schumer. I mean, Chuck Schumer is a his electoral performance is staggering. I mean, he ran so far ahead of Hillary Clinton hmm. in 2016. Um, he has visited every county in New York State every year since um, 1999. Um, you know, he's there's no way he could be beaten from the left in a primary challenge. But a lot of people in the kind of expanded Chuck Schumer universe tell me that he's worried about this. And it fits the facts, you know, not that he couldn't win a kind of fight in which he delivers some bad news to progressive interest groups and strong arms uh, base senators into doing something rather than nothing, but that he doesn't want to, you know, that that would put a lot of dirt on him and that he would rather have Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema be the bad guys than sort of be the bad guy himself. And that is just, um, it happens, you know, uh, caucus leaders sometimes compromise the interests of their caucus in defense of their sort of personal 
home state or home district politics, but you're not, you're not supposed to do that. Right. Um, you know, and, and Harry Reid, who faced tough races in Nevada, you know, he did a good job of mostly handling his own home state business and, uh, you know, going forward and, and Mitch McConnell, who, you know, you can say a lot of things about, um, but he has never been reluctant to sort of be the bad guy in the eyes of various elements of the Republican Party for the sake of leading the caucus mm. in the direction that he thinks will be best, right? So, like, his personal numbers are often really bad, you know, uh, because Kentucky is a super right-wing state, and the people there really want, like, some, you know, a more gonzo performance mm-hmm. from him, something closer to what they get from Rand Easy. Paul. But... He's he's the leader of the caucus, and he's pretty shrewd. And Chuck Schumer is also shrewd. I mean, if you read his old book, Positively American, and all his shtick about um, the Baileys and and gut checking with them, uh, I, I should say I was actually mm. intern in his office uh, oh, really? 22, 22 years ago. <laughs> so I mean, it's it's a long time ago. But I mean, I feel like I learned a lot about politics from Schumer. I feel like he's a, a an insightful thinker on these topics, but has. Um, lost the plot a little bit nationally in favor of this, this guarding of his left flank. So, and the, and the, the Biden White House, they're torn because I think like Mondays and Wednesdays, they're like, okay, we need to go in a new direction. Right. And then Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays, they get pushed along. It feels like that. Okay, let's go back to Joe Manchin because you make some interesting yeah. comments about him that, that the reality is he's a pivotal senator because mm-hmm. in 2020, the Democratic Senate candidates in North Carolina and Maine didn't win. I mean, that's the sort of the mm-hmm. institutional mm-hmm. design. Everybody's mad at Joe Manchin right now. Mm-hmm. Everybody is thinking that Joe Manchin is the guy who is blocking the Biden agenda irrationally. Why will he not go along with the party? And so you and you, you're proposing sort of an alternative narrative to make people less mad about this. Could you just uh, share that with us? Well, yeah, I mean, it's just like, I don't know. I don't know what to say, right? Biden got 29% of the vote in West Virginia, right? And Manchin has managed to win in that state. Um, You know, progressives, like, we're really lucky to have Joe Manchin holding down a Senate seat from West Virginia, right? Um, If he was gone, the next person there would be so far to his right. Uh, But then you look at states, you know, states like Maine, uh, where Biden won, states like North Carolina, and where he he came very close, but he lost. Even states like Florida and Texas that are solidly red, but but, uh, Ohio, Iowa, just so much more moderate uh, than West Virginia. You know, Democrats didn't, they didn't win those states, not because none of their ideas are politically viable in those places, but because the whole complete package, you know, wasn't viable. But if you had a little bit more of the spirit of Joe Manchin in North Carolina, Florida, Texas, Iowa, Ohio, I mean, couldn't Democrats hold two or three seats out of those five states and then have a, a little bit more to kind of work with here? Um, th- things like that. Uh, but they, they came up short, you know, and you have, in effect, a coalition-type regime uh, in which, you know, Democrats hold a majority by virtue of Joe Manchin, you know? And so you have to take what he says and what he thinks seriously. You have to take seriously the fact that, I mean, of course Biden would like to enact the policies that he ran on in his campaign, uh, but, you know, did Joe Manchin run on those policies in his campaign? Uh, obviously not elements of them right i mean like yeah yeah 
Isa, your national therapy idea is, if you're progressive, think of Manchin as negotiating the terms of a centrist coalition government instead of thinking of him as just blocking the the Biden agenda. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're a moderate, think of the country as being governed by a centrist coalition government, thanks to the pivotal role of Joe Manchin, Kirsten Sinema, Susan Collins, Mitt Romney, Lisa Murkowski. You'll also be a lot less mad if you think of it that way. And, you know, that's what I think a lot of people thought that there that that Joe Biden would come in and he would put together kind of this centrist coalition. I think he thought that he was going mm-hmm. to be able to work across the 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 aisle, right? I mean, this was something that came up over and over and over again that that he was kind of thinking that he would be able to sit in a room and he would be able to get some Republicans to sit down with Democrats and they would work out policies together. They did it on the infrastructure bill, so it is in theory possible. Why do you think that never happened. I, I know that there are yeah. some people who, who really hate this sort of critique, but, you know, in, in terms of Biden's, you know, his failures or the things he hasn't succeeded in doing, it is striking that with the exception of the infrastructure bill, he hasn't been able to get any of the buy-in from the centrist Republicans. Why do you think? So so there's two things, right? I mean, he he did the infrastructure bill, which yeah. surprised Impressive. People. 19 votes. They, they have, to some extent, you know, we didn't have a government shutdown. Uh, we had a lot of kind of posturing about the debt ceiling, but it wasn't really the kind of standoff that we had when, when Obama was president. So there's there's glimmers of that kind of bipartisan success. Uh, the Senate also passed by a huge majority this U.S. Innovation and Competition Act. Um, and now here's where I think Biden has made a kind of mistake, right? He's doing this squeeze play on voting rights that isn't going to work. Uh, what might work would be squeezing House Democrats to try to get them to pass this bipartisan bill that already passed the Senate, hmm. right? That That's something where extra exertions by the White House staff might make a difference. Now, they can still do it later, and I hope that they will, uh, but that would give you a second piece of significant bipartisan legislation to pass. Now, there's talk of a bipartisan deal around the Electoral Count Act. Uh, y- you know, So I-, I think that Biden actually has delivered a little bit on that promise and could deliver more on it if he leaned into it more. Now, but here's here's the problem, yeah. though, because here, here's what I think Biden can't do, is he can't make people feel like the country has had a big kumbaya moment, right? Because so many people experience politics not by you know, counting up votes in Congress, but by looking at what's happening in the media, right? And, you know, our experience of politics is very mediated by what's on cable, by what's on Twitter, by what's in the New York Times op-ed page. And it's quite um, extreme, right? It is a lot of very left-wing Democrats counterbalanced by a lot of very crazy Republicans. And, you know, You've got a podcast and, you know, I've got my Substack, mm-hmm. and Josh Barrow now will have a Substack and a podcast. Like there certainly are more moderate people who exist in the media, but we don't dominate the stage in, in the same way. And I, I think that that's like something of an the, understatement. The, yeah. But, but that's like the <laughs> that's the vibes of politics, right. you know, is Tucker Carlson doing whatever he's doing and then um 
you know, I, there was like a big thing on Twitter yesterday about how like all dieting advice is a form of eugenics. And, I know. <laughs> you know, like a lot of people were retweeting that. And I was like, I don't know. Like, that's kind of crazy, right? That's not like Joe Biden is not tweeting that. I, I'm yeah. glad. Um, but he can't. Uh, something Trump figured out how to do was be like a huge presence. So we were talking about Trump all the time. And he Biden could slipstream into these things. He he could yeah. become part of these dominant, perhaps irrelevant narratives, but the ones that were dominating the conversation. He was part of that. He may not have been leading it, but he certainly knew how to be a good follower and an amplifier of it. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, when it's like I was talking to, um, you know, somebody on the staff of, a, a, you know, a Western uh, Democratic Party senator, and they were making lots of really, I think, like good sound uh, kinds of points about things. But these are like people you never hear about. You know what I mean? Like there's not a lot of Ron Wyden and Catherine Cortez Masto and Michael Bennett in the news, right? You don't, so you don't no, not at all. feel like- no. There is a lot of influence being wielded by sort of sensible people. Uh, Lisa Murkowski doesn't do a lot of press. Uh, Mitt Romney is not on primetime television, uh, you know, being like on the one hand, on the other hand about things. And it's it's too bad, right? I mean, it contributes to dynamics that get people's hopes unrealistically up and get people's fears unrealistically up. And we don't focus on the kind of tangible things that really are at stake in the policy process. You know, it's funny you, you, you mentioned that because I was looking at a tweet um, a few hours ago of, uh, of Mitt Romney's appearance on one of the Sunday shows when he was trying to explain his opposition to some of the Democratic bills on, on voting rights. And he's trying to talk about uh, the, the, the danger of doing it on a strictly partisan basis, a federal takeover, whether you agree or you disagree. But it's interesting how there's very little engagement because of what you're just describing about these ideas and these differences. It, it becomes just the slogan. You're either for democracy, you're against democracy. And then you get President Biden going down to Georgia and saying you're on the side of Abraham Lincoln or Jefferson Davis, you know, either with Martin Luther King or George Wallace. It began that, that this is one of the times when he... Uh, you know, crossed over from saving the soul of America to engaging in that kind of bumper sticker thinking. But that that is where we're at right now. Right. You right. Know, the, and that you're either you're the pro you're either a racist or you're anti-racist. You're either you're either Wallace or you're Martin, Martin Luther King Jr. And if you try to raise your hand and say, well, actually, here's some alternative idea, you just get swept away, get ignored. Right. So, I mean, so here's a, a tweet Biden did this morning. He said, Jim Crow 2.0 mm. is about two insidious things, voter suppression and election subversion. It's about making it harder to vote, who gets to count the vote, and whether your vote counts at all. We have to pass the Freedom to Vote Act and John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. So, you know, a, a question I always want to ask Democratic communications staffers about anything that they say in public is like, what, like, what was the point of that? Right. Like what what is the goal of saying that now? I think one plausible goal is they are trying to make uh, staffers for and donors to Kristen Cinema and Joe Manchin pariahs inside Democratic Party circles. Right. They are saying that the stance you are taking on this is equivalent to being in favor of Jim Crow. Right. So that's like that's yes. a tough one. That carries right. a lot of weight inside Democratic Party politics. At the other hand, it's very overstated, right? To anyone who's like really well-versed in the substance of these pieces of legislation, you're just like, that 
that's really overblown. You know, uh, the stakes here, uh, they're not nothing, but they're not that big. It's just not the same as Jim Crow. Um, it's a little bit offensive, I think, honestly, to people who lived through Jim Crow to draw that kind of comparison. I mean, it's a, it's a weird thing to say. Um, but also to Republicans, right? This suggests apocalyptic stakes, in partisan political terms, right? It makes you think, well, I'm really glad Republicans are fighting against whatever the Freedom to Vote Act is, uh, because clearly Democrats are like staking their future on it. Now, you can imagine a totally different dialogue in which Biden is sitting around the table and he's talking to Rob Portman and he's saying, you know, I've got all of these progressive groups yelling at me about how we need to do this, that and the other thing, or it's going to be Jim Crow. Um, But, you know, I I looked at this with experts and they say that actually uh, the stuff you guys have done in red states, it hasn't reduced voter turnout at all. And it's also not clear that high turnout even helps Democrats. And then Portman says, you know, you're right, Mr. President, like you're very insightful. Uh, You understood that these progressive groups are are full of shit. Uh, But then the president could say to him, he could say, but Senator, um, if you don't gain any partisan advantage by making it more inconvenient to vote, like, what's the point? Like, couldn't we just make it easier for people? Like, wouldn't that be nice? And they could maybe sit down and they could go through a whole list of provisions and find things that they can both agree wouldn't advantage either party, but would make life more convenient for people. And, and you, I'm not saying you could get a bill that way, but at least logically you could get a bill that way. You would right? think, like the, right, the stakes right. are actually not as high as people are making them out to be. So like, why is Texas reducing early voting? Like Republicans have not had a problem winning elections in Texas. Um, they are just making life less convenient for uh, my in-laws who live there and enjoy early voting. And uh, Republicans have won every statewide election for like a generation. And like, it, it's fine, right? Like, Well, I mean, but part of the problem is, of course, is, is that you do have this investment in, in the Trumpian big lie. It, it was sort of the cloud over all of this that, because, you know, this is a, I feel like this is kind of a lost cause, but you would think that there would be a bipartisan consensus around election reform that would deal with ballot integrity, but also ease of access, and that you want members of both parties to have confidence in the system. So you have a bipartisan, you know, law that means that Republicans are going to, uh, you know, respect the results and Democrats will respect the results. But unfortunately, you have Republicans who have a vested interest in, you know, spreading the, the, you know, spreading the disinformation, the distrust. And then, of course, you have, you know, the hyperpartisan, you know, folks uh, on the Democrat side as well that that want to engage in litigation, even when you have bipartisan compromises. And it does strike me, I don't know whether you agree with this or not, that, you know, even though you hear people say failure is not an option, it is an option for some people. That they're they're I mean you know what I, you know what I mean I mean I, I saw you got in sort of a back and forth with the Democratic lawyer uh, Mark Elias who said you know don't buy into the trap of reforming yes. the Electoral Count Act that it's a trap and as you pointed out the trap being actually accomplishing something as opposed to accomplishing nothing so I yes. mean it felt like I mean, there was that vested interest in no if we're if we don't get everything we want then we need to be against everything we need to. <laughs> 
And I mean, it's a good coalitional politics, right? To say that like everything has to be done, that that all the point elements of the package are essential. Because what would happen if you tried to have a bipartisan agreement is that you could get some stuff done that would be useful and other stuff would have to be set aside, right? Because what, but, what Dem- but that lowers the temperature, that lowers the outrage meter. Well, and it accomplishes something. Right. I I mean, critically, right. You keep having this with 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 Build Back Better, too. Right. Where it's like, look, we could maybe get a preschool program done, but not a childcare subsidy, which is clearly better than doing neither. But you would need a leader in the party to go to the childcare people and say, I am sorry, but we have had to cut your priority from the bill in order to get a bill passed. Whereas if you insist on everything and then Joe Manchin kills everything, you accomplish nothing. But you, as Biden, as Schumer, as Pelosi, can say to the different groups in your coalition, look, I did everything I could for you. It's this other guy who ruined things. Um, So you need to decide in politics. Uh, We we were joking about slow boring. It's uh, it's the name Mm -hmm. of my my newsletter. Uh, It's it's a line from Max Weber. Um, You know, when he's talking in politics as a vocation about uh, the ethic of responsibility versus the ethic of ultimate ends. And in the ethic of ultimate ends, you just position yourself as being on the right side of the issue, right? I was for all this big list of good things, and if it didn't happen, that's because bad people stopped me. Mm -hmm. The ethic of responsibility is you say, look, what did I achieve? And did my choices make life better, or did they make it worse, right? By refusing to settle for half a loaf, you end up with nothing and you harm the causes that you say you care about. And that the skilled practitioners of politics uh, are aware of that and are ready to make deals. And and that's how it's always been in life. But Democrats have gotten a little paralyzed. Well, this seems highly relevant because it seems as if the, the incentive structure of the parties right now is that you play to your roused base, you play to the activist groups, you play to the funders there, as opposed to being in, involved in um, the or the art of persuasion. So, for example, you know, trying to figure out what was the strategy on voting rights over the last uh, couple of weeks, where, where it just didn't seem to make any sense if you wanted to pass legislation. On the other hand, if you wanted to keep um, your base aroused or you wanted to keep those interest groups engaged, then it does make sense, right? I mean, so you're on the call trying to gin up the enthusiasm or at least keep them from being mad at you um, becomes more of a priority than actually getting that legislation or some legislation across the finish line. Is is that a fair? And I mean, it's definitely true that, you know, politics, even at the group level, has become more symbolic and less transactional, right? If you're dealing with a business lobbyist uh, or a union lobbyist, um, you know, they have the stuff that they want, um, but they would like to get something, right? Like they, mm-hmm. you know, they they want their tax credit, they want their favorable regulations, I mean, whatever it is, they want you to deliver for them. When you have a group that raises grant money from foundations or it raises small dollars off the internet, yeah. it's not clear that they actually need policy wins to stay in business, right? Right. They need to mobilize people around what their issues signify. So losing is actually not necessarily a bad thing for them if it keeps people aroused and angry. 
Exactly. Even even people who claim to be doing issue work, you know, and this has been a very kind of dysfunctional dynamic in American politics. Um, I, I think it's I mean, I'm sure it has a deeper history than this. But but I mean, I remember it back to midway through the Obama administration. And, you know, the president is saying that he will agree to these kind of historic cuts in entitlement programs if Republicans will agree to raise taxes on the mm-hmm. wealthy. Uh, Republicans say no to that. Um, so the cuts aren't enacted. Obama gets reelected. So taxes go up uh, unilaterally because of the expiration of the Bush tax cuts. And Republicans get nothing. And it turns out that um, the Freedom Caucus... Uh, like the left didn't have the ability to stop Obama from making that deal. It was the Freedom Caucus uh, kind of like saved Social Security and Medicare from Barack Obama's desire for a bipartisan grand bargain. And what's interesting is that as far as I can tell, there was never like an accountability moment about that on the right. You know, nobody ever hmm, took stock right. and was like, wait a minute. <laughs> like, what What did we do there? Didn't we just play ourselves in like a terrible way? Instead, they just kind of went on to the next thing about how they hate Obama and they hate rhinos. And next thing you know, these people who a few years ago were like fanatical budget cutters. Um, now they're like, the biggest Trump fans in the universe, and they don't even care about these topics, which I find extraordinary at all. No, you're you you can't overstate that. It was like, really? Now, after all of this. Right. So So it's like, so like, what, what was that? Right. And, and you have a, the, 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 the dynamic on the left is not identical, but it has this structural similarity where you have. It feels that way. No, I know, I know what you mean. I, I, I get the, at least the echoes. It's not, it's not a mirror image, but it feels familiar. Okay, so Matt, can we just change subjects for a moment? Let's do it. I, I want to go back to something you said very early on when we were talking about where you said you had changed your mind about some things. Mm-hmm. And for listeners, we're shifting gears from you know the, the politics of the moment. I think one of the most interesting things that you have been doing with your newsletter and with, with your writing lately has been to confront your fellow progressives on the issue of race. because And mm-hmm. this is a fraught issue. You had a piece... Before this whole CRT thing blew up, it feels it was just like right before, you know, critical race theory Mm -hmm. became everything. You had a piece in the Washington Post um, really was addressed to your fellow progressives saying, you know, look, not all anti-racist ideas are good ones. And the left is not being honest about this. And I think, you know, one of the news pegs was when there was this shift from dismantling monuments to the Confederacy to taking Lincoln's name off of schools. Mm -hmm. And you wrote in educated liberal circles these days, everyone knows that racism is not just a question of individual prejudice or hatred. The conversations now are about structural or systemic racism, impersonal properties of systems embedded in processes. Certainly, it's true that race and racism have shaped many legal, political, and social institutions since America's early days. But when you make the scope of racism so expansive, that necessarily means pushing the conversations into contestable terrain. So let's just talk about that, because I know you must get tremendous blowback on all this. And this is what makes this so difficult to talk about, is racism is real. And there was a moment when the nation wanted to confront it. But we also have the people who basically say racism is everything I do not like. And I think we're in the midst of yet another backlash on this. So what did you mean when you said the left is not being honest about anti-racism? 
Well, you know, I, here's just like one one concrete example that came up recently is um, ProPublica did an investigation into um, uh, red light cameras in Chicago. And they found that they are recording a lot more um, violations and, and fines in the uh, African-American uh, neighborhoods of the city. And, you know, Chicago, if yeah. anyone knows it, very segregated uh, racially, residentially. And the whole sort of thrust of the story from there on out was that this was a kind of like racist practice in traffic enforcement, that the cameras were picking up so many more violations in black neighborhoods. They don't know the race of the drivers, but a kind of presumption that it's disproportionately influencing black drivers. And, you know, something I said about that was, look, um, you could read this exact same data the opposite way. Right. And you could say, um, well, there's much more speeding happening in black neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. And so this new program is really disproportionately benefiting African-American pedestrians in Chicago. And you can actually see if you look at it that pedestrian deaths, uh, both in Chicago and nationwide, are, are much more likely to harm black people than white ones. And so is the cameras racist or are they anti-racist? Or, you know, mm. do we actually need to look into so much deeper questions about how are the arterial roadways designed and why and, you know, where to go back, back forth? But the habit of just sort of like looking at disparities and then slapping a label on them, um, it can be inaccurate in some cases, and it can also just be backwards. And we've seen with the, the very large increase in murders that's happened in the United States over the past two years. Um, Herman Lopez uh, wrote a great uh, piece for the New York Times Morning Newsletter this morning. The weight of that has fallen very dramatically disproportionately on Black people who are much more likely to be victims of crime. And yet that idea has not worked its way into the racial disparities discourse because you, the, the left wants to be anti-racist, but they also want anti-racism to just mean that you do a lot of left-wing ideas, right? Rather than actually tracing in a specific way um, what is discriminatory, which impacts are disparate, which ideas would actually help. Well, this, this makes my head hurt in, in some way. So you, you pointed out in, in your Washington Post article that you know, Ibram Kendi, who's the author of, you know, How to Be an Anti-Racist, really conflates measurements of problems with the problems themselves, including he denounces the, not just the existence, he doesn't, doesn't denounce the existence of, of a large black-white achievement gap in school. He's upset by any discussion of such a, a gap. And he's actually written that we degrade black minds every time we speak of an academic achievement gap based on scores. So what's the problem? Is is in this particular case, it's not dealing with the reality of whether or not there's an achievement gap and and, and the cost of for you know young African Americans. But now you actually have a stigma on even talking about it. Right. And it's created a very, I, I mean, you saw this big push against standardized testing move into not wanting to measure learning loss uh, during the pandemic and remote schooling. You see it in this kind of um, stigmatization of certain magnet school policies. Uh, but it also, it becomes hard to discuss um, anything 
that is happening in American. Yeah. I shouldn't say anything, but right, right, many right. Th- many representational questions, right? Ultimately, trace back to the fact that you have um, many fewer African Americans graduating from uh, college, right? So any kind of field, which is normally done by college-educated professionals, is going to tend to underrepresent Black people among its ranks because they are underrepresented among the ranks of college-educated professionals, which, you know, has to go back in some way to what's happening inside the high schools, what's happening inside the K-8 schools. And you can't address learning in the elementary and high school level, unless you're going to attempt to use standardized measurements across the schools. There's lots of room for disagreement about the margin as to, you know, like exactly how should the tests work? How often do we need to give them? Should we use samples or have everyone do it? I mean, there's a lot that you can disagree about, but the idea that if a test shows that the black and Hispanic kids are doing worse than the white and Asian ones, that means that the test is per se, racist, it's going to make it impossible to improve how any of these systems function or to have any idea what we're doing as a society. And I think it's a very, um, this is not an idea that has been widely embraced by Democrats, but it also hasn't been widely contested. Kendi just kind of goes up there on the bestseller list and people talk about his other ideas. Like he has a lot of ideas in that Mm. book and a lot of them I think are fine, but it's, it's weird to see such a big, influential uh, book, such an influential figure as him, and then just decide that, well, the most polite thing to do would be to not talk about one of the weirdest, most out-there ideas that's in there, while that same idea kind of carries forward in graduate schools of education, in left-wing teachers' unions, and starts to influence practice. Well, I have to have you back, Matt, on on the podcast, because we haven't even talked about uh, COVID. We haven't talked about inflation. We haven't talked about CRT. We haven't talked about, you know, a, a variety of school closings, uh, all of those things. And I know that you have uh, opinions about all of them. Um, so uh, we, will you come back on the podcast? Because I feel absolutely, we've only like scratched scratch the, the, the surface of all of this. Uh, Matt Iglesias writes and edits Slow Boring on Substack. He's a columnist for Bloomberg and a senior fellow at the Niskanen Center. Um, co-founder of Vox. Latest book is One Billion Americans, The Case for Thinking Bigger, which we also haven't talked about. So, Matt, thank you so much for coming on the Bulwark podcast today. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'd love to come back sometime. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow. We'll do this all over again. <laughs>